Hey everyone, welcome to season one of There Was an Idea. In this episode, I am Iron Man. Join Catalandry and me as we discuss the 2008 film Iron Man and connect it to the central idea of season one of this podcast. When the way the world sees you comes into conflict with how you see yourself, it's the choices that you make that ultimately determine your identity. I am TK of New York and I am burdened with glorious purpose. I teach teenagers about history and literature, and I'm also a huge fan of pop culture. And this is There Was an Idea, a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that finds itself at the place where those two things meet. Join me and some special guests as we explore the MCU through concepts in the humanities. Spoiler alert, one of those concepts is intertextuality, and as such, each episode of this podcast will contain spoilers for multiple films in the MCU. Thinkers, inquirers, and lovers of entertainment, assemble. So with me today, I have one of my very closest friends and fellow educator, Catherine DeLandry. Hey, everyone. Um, Kat, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your own relationship to the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk about identity with you. And um, especially, you know, thinking that this is what we talk about in our classrooms with our students. So having the opportunity to apply that to a film is super exciting. Um, I haven't personally seen many Marvel films, which is like, <gasps> gasp. I know people are probably um, surprised by that. Um, so I was excited to dig into Iron Man and um, experience a Marvel movie for all the hype that it so rightfully has. I want to hear your your impression. What did you think of Iron Man? Did you like this movie? Did you not like it? What was your overall Yeah, I definitely thoughts? appreciated the small comedic bits in it that they, you know, especially in the beginning, I really noticed a lot of like contrasting elements, which surprised me as a viewer. Um, and I was kind of wondering, like, who is this character and what am I getting myself into with this story? And um, I really love the suspenseful moments. I'm such a sucker for those kind of things. So that totally got me throughout the movie, especially um, the moment when Pepper at the end is confronted by Obadiah. That like got me so much. So um, I'm always I'm always impressed by that. Definitely. Um, my own relationship with this movie is interesting. I saw this movie when it first came out. Um, I don't think I saw it in the movie theater. I don't have a memory of seeing it in the movie theater. So I'm going to guess that I didn't. Um, but I saw it the summer after it was released on DVD and um, definitely thought it was great. And since that time, I've kind of come back to it here and there. And while it's definitely not my favorite of the Marvel movies, it is one that I find sort of comforting to rewatch. And um, there's a lot that I love about this movie. I love that opening scene when you just get the shot of the desert mm -hmm. and then the ACDC music hits. And I know that was something that sort of had an impression on you too, right? That totally. Scene. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you can feel the energy with that song. I mean, it's just so powerful and you it amps you up right away for the adventure that's about to unfold automatically. And you're in this barren place. So you have this energy kind of contrasted with this like yeah. barren, you know, setting and you're just wondering what's going to happen. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think the music in general is something that I love a lot about this film, both the soundtrack and the score. Um, I love the pacing of this movie, and I, I know you don't have too many to compare it to, but a lot of times with um, superhero films and comic book films, especially if it's a character's origin story, so the, the story of them becoming the hero that they are going to be, the stories can feel kind of bogged down in a lot of detail and exposition. Um, but with this one, I, I love that it starts in that really active moment and then you get the flashback to the 36 hours earlier and get more of the exposition totally. stuff. And I have to say, personally, I'm not somebody who can sustain movies very often. So the fact that I was hooked in from the beginning, right? Like we're seeing these these tanks right off the bat. And then next thing you know, we see a glass of scotch and it's just totally contrasting right, right. in this atmosphere. And that hooked me right away. It made me wonder, what am I getting myself into as a viewer? And I wanted to know I wanted to watch. So I really like that element. Yeah, so um, this movie, uh, just a little bit of context, um, as I said, came out in 2008. Um, it actually came out the same year as the movie uh, Dark Knight, Ooh. which is kind of, uh, 2008 was a big year for superhero movies yeah. and superhero movies that were kind of different than the ones that had come out in um, the years prior, just in that they were grounded in such reality in a way that like the Spider-Mans that had Tobey Maguire weren't as much. When Iron Man came out, the Marvel Studios, they were kind of taking a gamble. They weren't sure if this movie was going to succeed, let alone launch such a successful franchise. The many people at the time thought that Iron Man was kind of a weird choice to be the first character to kind of like uh, be, be their inaugural uh, story hmm. into this Marvel Cinematic Universe. But um, while it may have been kind of a strange choice, I think it actually works really well. I think uh, Tony Stark as Iron Man is a really interesting entry point into this world. And um, while he's not my favorite character and this is not my favorite movie, I also wanted to use this as an entry point into this podcast because I think this movie works really well as kind of a straightforward identity story. While Tony Stark slash Iron Man also has a really interesting arc that develops across all of the other sequel films, um, this story also works alone in a really interesting self-contained way. I want to take a minute to just talk about why I find superhero identity to be so interesting and worthy of analysis. So what's interesting with superheroes is you have the person, in this case Tony Stark, and you have the persona, in this case Iron Man, um, and that in and of itself can be a real source of conflict. There's um, also a whole thing with secret identities, and there's a whole thing with costumes and what, what these heroes are wearing and what that says about their identity. So there's a lot to unpack. Where is the line between the person and the persona? Um, and especially with the Marvel comic characters, there's a long history too of over time and in parallel universes, different people taking on the mantle of the superhero. So Peter Parker is Spider-Man, but there are also other Spider-Mans. So then it becomes who is Spider-Man and who is Peter Parker and where is that line? So in this movie with Tony Stark and Iron Man, it's not quite as complicated as all that, but there's still some really interesting stuff to unpack. We can look at different aspects of identity, individual, relational, public, collective. And in this case, we're gonna really kind of focus on Tony Stark, what is his individual identity? His relational identity comes up a lot in conversation about his father and his father's legacy. And um, really his public identity is a really big part for him too. And even his perception of himself um, and how he, he sees himself as capable or able or willing to fulfill that role throughout the film. 
One of the things that I know that you talk a lot about, Kat, with our students in your role as an English teacher is how do we know who characters are? And I know that you talk a lot about direct characterization versus indirect characterization and where you where you find evidence of who a character is. Yeah, so I think when whenever I'm presented with a story, you know, whether it's film or in a novel, I'm always curious to look at this conflict that a, that a character is presented with. We want to see how a character is going to approach that conflict, right? And what and how the character approaches that conflict says a lot about him or her. Um, also what other people would say about him and how he's interacting with the world around him. So how like have it. other people talked about Tony in the film and what can that help us understand about who he is as a person and how he's going to navigate this conflict and the challenges that arise? Right from the very beginning of the film, we get a lot of indirect characterization of Tony. Um, in that scene in the Humvee, like you said, we, we see that glass of whiskey. He's... I love that. I really did. That like that blew me away as a viewer because it was just such a juxtaposition between the environment that he was in and this persona of who could this guy be? He must be important because he's wearing a suit and he has a sco- uh, you know a glass of scotch or whiskey in his hand, which seems like such a luxury, right? So to be having in this barren place where there's probably no water around. So in my mind, I'm like, wow, who is this guy? And then he gets into this really interesting conversation with the people in the tank. And next thing you know, they want to take his a photo with him. So obviously, I'm now understanding that this guy is important mm-hmm. and they're impressed to be around him, which is then contrasted again with the explosion that happens right yeah. after. So it's this this, this um, kind of threw me for a spin as the viewer. What am I getting myself into here? And why is this man dressed so nicely in this environment? Yeah, it's really interesting what you said too, the observation about the glass of whiskey in the middle of the desert. Right. Right? right. That's so, it's such an interesting observation. And yeah, straight from the very beginning, he's snarky, he's cocky, he's kind of making fun of the other soldiers. Um but they, but they love it too, mm-hmm. right? They're enamored with him. He's kind of a jerk, but he's really charismatic and they're laughing with him and the young soldier wants his picture taken with him. And I think right from the beginning, you get a real sense of, even as a viewer, how you're going to be taking in this character of Tony Stark. You're like, do I like this guy? Right. Like, but it's, he's making you laugh. He's really charming. But there's obviously, there's some stuff there too. And yeah. you're like, how don't, tone deaf can you be, man? Like you're in this, <laughs> this these soldiers are somber, in, you know, in, in this environment. And here you are with all your flash. Yeah. My initial impression was, is he supposed to be here? He is somebody who we're, we're going to pay attention to in the way, almost like, dare I say, manipulates people. I don't think he was necessarily mm. manipulating, but he knew how to work them. Like he knew how to interact. He was a people pleaser, right? He was, he was kind of commanding that space. Yeah, and what's interesting is, again, like thinking about actions and what actions tell us about a character, he's commanding in that space, he's working the people, but then there's also times when he choo- when he chooses not to, right? So it, when we get that flashback 36 hours earlier and you get the Las Vegas scene and there's that presentation, which is there to serve as exposition for the viewers to tell us who Tony is and what his background is and to set up um, who his father was and how he's living up to his father's legacy to set to set up who Obadiah Stane is. Um, so it functions there for a lot of narrative purposes, um, but it also gives us a, more of that direct characterization, right? This is totally. who he is. Um, and then we also see through his own actions 
how, like you said before, there's contrast. So he doesn't even show up to accept that award. And he leaves his friend Rhodey hanging. Rhodey is there to present him the award because it's going to be this huge honor and he doesn't show up, right? Mm -hmm. So he knows how to command people, but then he, he doesn't have the patience to show up for this event because he knows he doesn't have to. Right, right, um, right. And he's also described as a genius, an American patriot, which I thought was interesting, brilliant, um, a brilliant, unique mind, right? They fit that the fact that he changed the face of the weapons industry. So here we have this man who um, is smart. He has this powerful company that many Americans look toward probably as a leader in this way. And so his actions, right, of not necessarily being there also help show us that maybe he seems like he's above it, right? We get the sense of kind of his ego mm -hmm. maybe overriding, um, which is interesting. Yeah, and it raises questions too, we, as a viewer, right? So we're seeing what his public identity is and we're reading into these actions, but we don't quite know yet. Like, mm. what is his personal identity? What is his relationship to all of this? Does he really want to be like his father? What is his real investment in this company? We right. don't actually know yet. Um, so you're kind of invested in finding out. It brings up that question that I kind of go back to when I'm when I'm thinking about characters. Why are they the way that they are? And what has influenced their being the way that they are? Definitely. Oh, and the, I think the other point that's probably worth mentioning is when Obadiah Stane, I believe, says that the best and worst quality about him is that he's always working. And I think this comes up as a significant point later in the film, that this seems to be um, a great asset and also a challenge. So that struck me, right, as, as something why. Why will this be a conflict and also a great attribute for this character? Definitely. And I also, too, as a viewer, think of it as the best thing about Tony Stark is also the worst thing. And that sort of captures how you feel about him, too, so far as a viewer, because you're like, oh, well, he's he's flashy. He's charismatic. He's got this cool lifestyle. Yeah. But that's also the worst thing about him. He's also cocky. He's also arrogant, right? So it kind of um, speaks to that. There was the interaction with Christine when he meets Christine for the first time. Yes, let's right talk about that. Yeah. That's definitely a big scene. And we were talking about this earlier. The character of Christine has a, has a three beat, right? She kind of shows up three different times. She's an interesting kind of harbinger of where he's at in yes. his identity journey. Um, and you had mentioned when we were talking about this before that she actually says the first time that she meets him something about a mirror. That's right. So when Christine approaches Tony, she calls him a few different things. She calls him the Da Vinci of our time, right? So sort of speaking to that, I guess you could say more neutral to positive public persona of this great inventor. Um, and then she also calls him the merchant of death. And then... Uh, he, you know, being who he is, kind of does this great toe-to-toe -to -toe repartee with her, and he has um, a snarky comment for everything that she kind of confronts him on about his role as being a weapons manufacturer. And she basically says to him at one point, like, oh, that's great. Do you rehearse that in front of the mirror at night? And, you know, he's so quick to say that, yes, he does. And you almost kind of believe him that, right, like, he's so practiced in this role um, that you kind of believe that he's rehearsing for it, right? That he has this awareness that he's playing a role. Um, but then you pointed out, Kat, that that comment that she makes about him rehearsing in front of the mirror actually 
is really interesting in light of who Christine is as a character. And the, and her placement in the storyline, right? And I think it's also kind of ironic that she is from Vanity Fair, mm. right, too? Because what she does reflect to him is his own ego, mm. I think, and Very the way that he sees himself and, his, and comes to terms with his own identity throughout the film. Because the next time that we see her in the film is at the, um, what was it, the award ceremony? Yeah, it was it's some at, type of at the um, it's a charity event. The or charity event, like that. yeah. Um, and obviously, this is after they had slept together, and so initially, we think that oh man, at least in my mind, my initial thought was okay, this is the purpose of this character, right? She she's served her function as as showing us that Tony Stark is this man of power who gets what he wants. He's this playboy, right? Right. Exactly. And even even though she disagrees with him and is going to confront him, ultimately she's going to be so charmed by him and have this relationship with him. And that's what I kind of think is and interesting. Gets put is out of she, his house without a second thought. That's right. Yeah. And and that's what I find interesting too. So she she does, but um, rather than uh, sometimes you 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 get in these films. Uh, not particularly the MCU films, but just in movies in general, you get this kind of story of like, oh, if this woman um, is with this guy and then he rejects her, that she is going to kind of react stereotypically and be all upset and this and that. But it doesn't really seem to phase her, right? right. It seems like she was fine to, you know, be with him for the night. And it was and interesting, the comment that Pepper Pot made when she was, quote unquote, throwing out um, Christine from his mansion yeah. because, you know, she said, oh, it's also my job to throw out the trash. She made some comment. And to me, I feel like that's kind of symbolic of um, Tony Stark not being able to come to terms with his his sense of self, right? He's almost still wrestling in the beginning of this film with who he is, right? You talked about right. the legacy of his father and not coming to terms and not even being there to accept this award. So he seems to be lavishing in the glory, yet isn't taking on the responsibility of what it means to hold this company that has these weapons of mass destruction. Right, and so right, right. she confronts him about this identity and she's kind of thrown out with the trash, yet she's this mirror um, who's holding up this idea of who he is and he doesn't maybe seem to like it and maybe that's far-fetched but it's one interpretation and i like it a lot better than i think a surface reading of that scene you know for a really long time i i just really didn't like that line about taking out the trash because i think pepper potts is such an awesome character and i think she's above kind of making a petty kind of comment to another woman right and like she's just kind of um you know equating this woman with like somebody who needs to be thrown out the next day and um well, that also speaks to her development too, right? Because you get it this does, subtle. Because as, as as a viewer, I got this subtle inkling of, oh, is she jealous, right? And that I think also develops her relationship with Tony later on. But but I think the reason why it's it's significant to go down this path of talking about this situation in the film is is because we see Christine intentionally added in the movie, right? Twice more, yes. which are key moments for Tony Stark's development. So the other time, the second time, was at the charity event. That's right. And in that moment, she shows him the photos. That's right. So that's another key moment for him on his journey. Um, And then she's going to show up again at the end, at that final press conference. Um, So why don't we we backtrack for a minute and sort of trace more of that journey for Tony Stark? So we have this moment when he is confronted by Christine and confronted by the narrative um, for the first time to sort of say, hey, um, this is this glamorous life that you're living, but there's also a dark underside to what your company does. 
And um, and it is, although there's this dark underside, there is this very heroic side to him that I think we get as the viewer initially, you know, especially that the fact that you, I think you said this film was made in 2008, mm-hmm. right? So this is coming only several years after, you know, 9-11, where we still have the war on terror yep. happening. And so we have this perception of this man who is helping us defeat this very real conflict that the United States is facing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought that up to you. This movie is very much of that post 9-11 war on terror moment. And um, so there's, it, yeah, there, there's some really interesting stuff going on in the text as well, in terms of how much the text is condemning Mm. The actions that the United States government and military took. And it also feels easy to accept him as somebody who's got our back and wants to protect us. Absolutely. So it helps us buy into that, to trusting him as a character. Oh, this man is doing something to protect United, you know, American citizens. So right. it helps buy into he's on our side, the right? Public persona we have a shared years. enemy through his identity. Yes, collective identity, right. right? Tony Stark as American patriot, one of the first things exactly. That he's called. Exactly. So, um and they they definitely do a lot in this film to anchor Tony Stark and his actions in the larger context of US history. They keep talking about his father, how his father uh, worked on the Manhattan Project and developed the atomic bomb. And sort of that legacy is something that Tony has to grapple with as well. Totally. Um, But speaking of him grappling, so (laughs) once we get, um, we see the moment he's confronted by Christine, then we get some more um, character moments where he is late to go meet Rhodey at the plane when they're flying out to Afghanistan. And he's, uh, you know, forcing Rhodey on the plane to drink, even though Rhodey doesn't want to. And Rhodey keeps calling him irresponsible. And so we get some interesting character stuff there, too. And we're seeing his relationship with Rhodey. Um, yeah, and the fact that Rhodey up. buys into it and then it, it flashes to them having fun on the plane, you kind of get, or at least I got this impression in my mind where um, he's a person who is so charismatic that that people love and that they don't let those, if you would call them shortcomings, cloud their vision of their fondness for who Tony is as a character. Right, right, right. Yes, exactly. Um, cause I don't know. I, I think I would be pissed if it was my <laughs> friend and, and not just friends. So he, you know, Rhodey is air force and he liaises to Stark industries. And so it's his job too. And Tony kind of is letting him down and not showing up on time and all of these things. And you get the impression that this is not new. Um, so it's kind of interesting, their friendship. And it's something that we get some more insight into in the future films. And then we're back in Afghanistan. We get sent back to the moment, um, after the explosion of the Humvee. And this is where, Kat, I know um, we were going to talk a little bit about Tony Stark's identity story as in some ways following the, the, uh, the stages of the hero's journey. So what, are you, what do you make of that? Right. So, so this idea of him being back in the United States and seeing him in the casino and at the award ceremony gave me this idea of the hero's ordinary world and how he was accustomed to being in that world to give and receive love and attention and just be, right? Um, and to be honored for that. And then we see him um, transition into the Middle East 
and um, we see him entering this new world. Kind of the hero is crossing the threshold um, into this new world where his company of creating these weapons are now coming to fruition and we're seeing the, the hold that it has on his life. And um, then he eventually meets Yinsen, the his mentor um, in, in many ways, and who really guides him to overcoming the enemies in this moment who we don't really understand yet why they are his enemies we think it's more of a traditional enemy hero like a war that we are accustomed to as seeing like as americans going back to that idea um and we see this cyclical nature of him creating um or finding a solution to this problem of being trapped of being captured of um wanting to create something that these people are saying he has to do but he finds a more creative solution. And and I have to say, that moment, that first cyclical nature where we saw this kind of cycle start to take fold, I was feeling kind of gypped, if mm. you will, um, because it seemed like Tony was so quick to accept Yinsen's advice. He was so quick to come up with a different solution um, and I was almost taken aback by that. And I think that's where we don't see the full hero cycle yet because the right. hero still needs to wrestle with his overall uh, story. Right. And we were kind of talking about this too, right? The first maybe 45 minutes or so of this film can kind of work as a standalone little story in which Tony gets captured in Afghanistan, is forced to make the Jericho missile, decides to be more creative and using the tools and using the skills that he's good at, makes the Iron Man suit instead and escapes Afghanistan, return home, that's it, right? So that's kind of its own little self-contained story. And it certainly could be, but we as the audience, we just could be like, eh, so what, you know? Right. It doesn't do anything for us as a feel good. We didn't get the real struggle in his identity yet. Exactly. And so that's why I was like, okay, the, the jit moment that I had, I felt, okay, there's more to come, right? This right. is just the beginning for this character. Right, because despite the fact that he's being waterboarded and he's being kept in a cave and all of these things that are terrifying that you could certainly stretch out to a full movie's worth of experience. It's a traumatic event. Um, we don't see him struggle. We mm -hmm. just see him, like Obadiah said, he's always working, right? So he just puts himself to work and starts working on this Iron Man suit. Um, so the the very thing that got him into this situation is the thing that's getting him out, right? His resourcefulness, his ability to be a creative engineer. Um, you have Jensen who functions as in this sort of... Um, Classic Campbellian, Cam Campbellian? Yeah. <laughs> In this classic Campbellian mentor role, um, telling uh, Tony, um, this is your legacy, Stark, your life's work in the hands of those murderers. Um, and he kind of sarcastically calls him the great Tony, Tony Stark. Um, and so he's sort of pointing out to Tony. And, and, you know, we, as viewers, we've been hit over the head with the irony already in that very <laughs> first scene when he's, you know, he's crawled out of the Humvee and next to him, you can see the missile with Stark Industries right there and it explodes in his face. The amount of times that a weapon is held up to his face, right? A weapon of his own creation and that he has to reckon with it is right. really interesting in this film. Yinsen functions in that way to sort of say, hey, there's more to this. And as he's dying to tell Tony, don't waste it, don't waste your life. And that's sort of Tony's then kind of second call to action to 
do something when he gets home right, to, right. to the United States. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, too, that you just brought up, this idea of constantly being confronted with his own weapons in his, in his own face, as if it's going to be the end of his story, yet it's not. And I feel like that is so reflective of the journey that human beings go through when we are confronted with a challenge or an obstacle in our lives and it keeps coming up again and again and Mm -hmm. how it's our job to notice patterns in our life and to become awake to it and do something about it. Really, really interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. The idea about being awake because then that kind of directly connects into the next moment. So he comes back to the States and he has that press conference. And as you said, um, this idea that he's becoming awake to it, he actually says, I've had my eyes open. So once again, Tony being very charismatic, right, sitting down with his burger, right, <laughs> and approaching the, the people that way. So he says, um, and I think this is loaded. There's a lot to unpack here. He says, I never got to say goodbye to my father. There's questions I would have asked him. I would have asked him how he felt about what his company did, if he was conflicted, if he ever had doubts. Or maybe he was every inch of man we remember from the newsreels. I saw young Americans killed by the very weapons I created to defend them and protect them. And I saw that I had become part of a system that is comfortable with zero accountability. I had my eyes opened. I came to realize that I had more to offer this world than just making things that blow up. And that is why effective immediately, I'm shutting down the weapons manufacturing division of Stark Industries. So this is loaded. It's full. It's this moment he says, I've had my eyes open. It's this catalyst for change, right? Going back to our central idea, the role he plays in the world is coming into conflict with how he sees himself or how he wants to see himself. And now he needs to make a choice. He needs to do something. But it's really interesting, too, because he is, he's at this first press conference, He's still not quite sure who he is. We get the sense that he's defining himself in relation to his father. This idea that he kind of has had to live up to his father's legacy. And despite all of his bravado and his ego, there's almost a hint here, too, that he doesn't really think too highly of himself because he says um, his in his realization, um, I had more to offer this world than just making things that blow up, which almost seems to suggest that he's been... He's always been told, like, this is what you do well. And this then he had this realization, oh, I can do other things too. Right. It definitely seems like he's coming to terms with this great reckoning in his life where he realizes he's been confronted with the patterns of the choices he's made by following in the footsteps of his father. And now he has this moment of realization where he sees that he can make a choice to change that in a meaningful way for him to follow his own path um, and to change the patterns that he's fallen into. But what's ironic about it too, and why I think this quote is so huge in the movie is that he says, I had more to offer this world than just making things that blow up. And then that's sort of what he goes on to do (laughs) in making the (laughs) Iron Man suits. Not that, you know, you know what I mean? Right. So it's interesting that he's he's grappling, right? He's still figuring it out. He is becoming increasingly aware of his public identity. Um, He says, I don't want a body count to be our only legacy. It's my name on the side of the building. The interesting thing with that, too, I think, is that when he comes home back from Afghanistan, he is revered as a hero, as a war hero, right? That identity, I think, continues up until this point. And so that's why I think there's this great reckoning that comes 
um, to awaken in him because he has to confront the rec- you know the recognition he's received from the public eye from society sure. and then his own sense of self and what and what is right right and what's interesting is that we said we didn't get to see him struggle so much when he was in the cave right because that was a that was a physical obstacle and he's good at those right but now he has to struggle socially, emotionally when he gets back because even Pepper, even Rhodey, definitely Obadiah and, you know, the guy on Mad Money, right, are all <laughs> critiquing his decision to shut down the weapons manufacturing division. Right. And and this was the internal conflict that I was, I guess, waiting for. How right. I said I had felt gypped with the other wrestling um you know of his nature or or his journey and here it came to fruition you know so just had to wait and trust a little bit that it would come and it did yes yes absolutely so when we get into that whole middle section of the movie um there's this awareness now of his public identity and we're starting to see that it doesn't quite align with who he feels he is in terms of his personal identity we get that second scene with christine everhart um, and he, he even says to her, well, I'm not my company, right? He She calls him out and says, look at these pictures. You know, your company obviously authorized um, sell, selling these weapons to now, not just, oh, okay, we are using these weapons in the United States to fight the quote unquote bad guys, right? This kind of classic good versus evil, um, which is in and of itself is very complex. And there's some really interesting stuff you could unpack in relation to American military history. Um, so it's not just that, that he sees, he sees, oh, okay, they're in the hands of the Americans over there, but he's seeing, oh my gosh, the company is actually in these dirty deals with the Ten Rings, with the terrorists. So he is kind of forced to further distance himself from the Stark Industries name, from what that legacy is. Um, and then you kind of get the second big action moment. I mean, you get him building the suit and all that and flying up toward the moon and it icing and all of that. But then you get the scene in Galmira when he um, intervenes in a way that you could definitely defend morally, although completely unlawful, right? Intervention in this other country that he just shows up in his Iron Man suit to say, hey, these are the bad guys and I'm taking them out, Um, but to destroy his own weapons, right? So while in that first big scene in the suit, he is escaping the cave. It's about self-preservation, right? Now he's using the suit. He's using the Iron Man identity before it's really been named that, but he's using it to do good in actually helping some of these civilians in the province of Galmira, which is also where Yinsen is from. I'm, I'm not sure if you caught that part. I don't so think so. There's kind of like yeah, that yeah, little yeah. connection there too. Yeah, and so and so thinking about how Christine was the catalyst, right? right? She brings him back to recognizing his hands in creating these um, weapons, right? And so she forces him to take a hard look, quite literally, um, at his role in this, and continues to be that that quote unquote mirror back into himself and where he is, and to figure out what his role is, yeah. which I find so interesting. And, and the fact, too, that you just mentioned her last name is Everhart, yeah. um, you know, I feel like probably isn't for naught because um, thinking about Tony's own heart, right, and how that's replaced with this, yes. this 
iron object, right? The arc and, reactor, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so her last name is Everheart, right? So it's almost like she's this mirror helping him find his heart, helping him return to his true identity. Really, really interesting. Yeah, I had never thought that about her name before. It wasn't uh, lost on me either after thinking about this movie a lot. And when we talk about a character having a change of heart, right? Going totally. Right? Yes. That in, in his case, it's very literal. So total. Yes, um, exactly. Which is really interesting. And I think also you mentioned at the very beginning this idea of understanding a character in, in public, right, versus private realms as well. And I think this is when we also see this shift in identity, this change of heart, how he is navigating his public persona versus who he wants to be internally. Yes, absolutely. And we start to get some more direct characterization and directly from him too, like the more he starts to become aware of who he is. Um, so when he's having the discussion with Pepper, who is not totally support, it's interesting, right? Like Rhodey is kind of dismissive of him and, and calls him a quote unquote humanitarian kind of in a dismissive <laughs> way. And Pepper too is sort of like, you know, this is dangerous for you. She's thinking about him, like you're going to get hurt. There's bullet holes in your suit and all of these things. And she's thinking too very pragmatically about her job and what this company does. And he sort of has to say to her, if you could stand by me throughout all of the destruction I caused, you know, that now you got to stand by me now too. And in that conversation with her, he says, I shouldn't be alive unless it was for a reason. I just finally know what I have to do. I know in my heart that it's right. And for him to like speak so directly um, is so in stark, no pun intended, contrast <laughs> to when we see him earlier on and he's just got a quip for everything, right? But for him to say like, there's a reason that I'm alive, right? Harkening back to Yinsen telling him not to waste his life. Um, for him to say, I finally know what I have to do, right? So it tells us that maybe he does, he has seemed confident all along, but he was not necessarily confident mm. in what his purpose was. Mm. Um, and I know in my heart that it's right. And he's even specifically referencing his heart. Um, it's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I do think that's interesting how he does communicate that so much more strongly in that middle part, right? Where after he has that recognition, when before at the beginning of the film, he, I, to my knowledge, does not discuss or articulate his own sense of self in any way. He right. allows others to do it for him, kind right. of like you were alluding to, right? right allows right. society to uh, depict him as the hero they want, right? We we have this the world of the film building that image for us. Yes. Yet then after this transition, we see, like you're saying, him able to articulate this new version of himself and coming into himself. Well, it's interesting. It kind of raises a question, right? How much is he articulating an identity that was always there? Or how much is he forming a new one that is going to come to be known as Iron Man, right? So it, that, to me, it, re it relates back to that quote, um, that I found from Psychology Today when it says identity formation involves three key tasks, discovering and developing one's potential, right? So he's been through that, choosing one's purpose in life, right? He's making an active choice to say, this is how I'm going to use my potential. And, uh, and the third one, and finding opportunities to exercise that potential and purpose, right? And now he's finding these specific instances in which he's going to, to use this power that he has. Okay, so as we approach the end of the film, um, oh, so first of all, Kat, just from a viewer point of view, how did you feel about the Obadiah stain reveal? Did that <gasps> surprise you? 
I want to say it didn't, but it, I mean, it kind of <laughs> did. Of course, it's not that simple, right? I right. should have seen it coming. Right, right, um, right. But I am, I was pleasantly surprised, I guess. I don't know if that, sure. I don't know if I was pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I think I was pretty shocked. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah, and they have a really interesting relationship too, right? Um, Tony is reckoning with his his dead father's legacy, but then there's also this guy who was sort of his surrogate father in a way, right? Who is now completely turning on him. I did have to laugh at the moment when Obadiah is in the ironmonger suit and he names the central irony of the film to Tony in his monologue. He says, how ironic, Tony, trying to rid the world of weapons, you gave it its best one ever, and now I'm going to kill you with it. <laughs> um, it's so on the nose. And, so and Kat, nose. again, as... I uh, love irony. <laughs> I know you love irony. How do you feel about a character stating it so directly? I mean, I guess you could say it's a bit overkill, you know, but in the moment it really made it super dramatic because we all know that that he's going to die. I mean, how <laughs> could how could the film end with his triumph, right? Right. So um, I guess the irony that isn't stated, right, really is the fact that he is killed, right? We know as viewers of these hero villain stories right. that Obadiah will not triumph. So it's kind right. of dramatic irony in that we really know know what's going to happen and Obadiah doesn't right so so I really got a kick out of it there's like a double irony yeah but Obadiah kicked the bucket so (laughs) he did kick it and what's funny too is um in a way as on the nose as that scene is it kind of sets up where Tony's conflict is going to go next because there are sequels to this movie um, there are a lot of movies in the MCU that involve the character of Tony Stark, and this story works as a self-contained story, but there's more to it as well. So while this is his story of kind of becoming Iron Man, in the future he is going to have to deal with that fact, that irony of the fact mm-hmm. that he was trying to rid the world of weapons and then created the Iron Man suit. So um, that's going to be something that is going to come up for him later. So then speaking of how this movie ends and what it sets up for the future, we have the second press conference scene at the end of the movie, the third appearance of the reporter, Christine. Who I was shocked, by the way, to see her come back. I mean, it really brought a full circle for me seeing her again because she was so intentionally placed throughout the film, in my opinion. Right, right. So having her appear at the end of the film really felt full circle. Right, that she's the one who is kind of pushing and questioning. And I wonder to what extent, right, like, again, having that mirror held up to him uh, impacts his decision to basically come out as Iron Man then in the end. Um, It had seemed that he was very willing to kind of just go along with the false story that he was being fed by S.H.I.E.L.D. But then in that moment, it's really interesting. You can kind of see his wheels turning right and um he basically says you know oh that that's you you're you're calling me a superhero and she's like well no i didn't actually call you a superhero (laughs) and he says that would be outlandish and and then he kind of like pauses and he's just like fantastic like he kind of realizes like oh that would be kind of fantastic but then he says and and it's more like he's trying to convince himself than others he says i'm just not the hero type clearly and he says oh i have these these deficits and things like that and then he has that moment where he says, the truth is, I am Iron Man, and, and kind of gives that little smile at the end. 
And that's the first time that he's kind of confidently confidently stating who he is. We're going to find out that it's not that simple, right? Because here he is claiming the identity of the superhero of the suit. But who is the man underneath that suit? And, you know, to what extent are they the same? So that that's kind of where we're going to go in the future. But what did you think of that ending that the truth is I am Iron Man? What did you think of that? I have to say it was satisfying. It was like, ah, like he finally came into recognition of himself and the journey that he had gone on internally as this character. And I think that claiming that he is Iron Man and acknowledging the fact that he has deficiencies or these deficits acknowledges the ego that he so clearly had at the beginning of the film, um, you know, in relation to the gambling and, and the way that he spoke to other people and the awards. And so we have this transition of him coming into himself, who he is as a person and finding peace with who he is as a person um, and recognizing that. And so that's why I think Christine was such a pivotal character in reflecting, really questioning him and forcing him to take that harsh look at who is he. And at the end, when she asks those questions, she propels him to claim that identity for himself. Yeah. And so as a tangent to that, It also makes me wonder about uh, what Christine kind of represents in the film overall of like society. Like, does she represent society to some extent calling to mind the attributes that heroes should have in in our world? Because I'm thinking of um, Spider-Man, right? And reporters in in all these different hero Mm -hmm. movies and the role that they have to hold the hero accountable, right? To some extent and to um, help them find that inner strength when they already have that physical strength. It calls to question the different aspects of their identity, right? Really their physical strength, their inner strength, their emotional strength. And so we see that he's able to put aside this ego that he's had and accept his responsibilities for um, for for the way that he's taken part in, in the world. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. That's such an interesting reading of it, too, because I think I also in the past, like, have grappled with, like, when he says there, I am Iron Man, is he saying that because he can't help himself? Like, he has to take credit that it's a narcissistic thing. And I I do think that there's elements of that in his character, and you're going to see it in the other films as well. But I love this reading that that you're giving, that there is a lot of textual evidence there to say that this is a genuine moment. And he's changed. Of realization. And yet, he's changed. Yet I like what you just said, right? This idea of pride, because he definitely still shows by saying that at the end of the film, there's definitely just a slight recognition of that ego. So he hasn't totally lost it, right? He's not this mm. um, infallible human being. Right. He still has this pride in who he's become as a human being. I am Iron Man. He doesn't say it necessarily like that, yeah. but there's this self-recognition, which he is proud of himself for his accomplishments and then right as you're saying it unfolds yeah definitely into the next definitely really interesting stuff um i'm hooked i gotta watch the next two now i don't know if that i don't know (laughs) if that destroys my credibility in discussing this but i feel like it's also you know helping me look at just this as one finite yeah you know film so now i can unpack the rest definitely that's definitely why i wanted your perspective on this because i can i i see this movie in the context of not only Iron Man 2 and 3 and the four Avengers films and Captain America Civil War, but like <laughs> all of the all of the MCU movies and to have a conversation with somebody who's really just looking at this one mm. and doing a close reading of this one text, I think is um, definitely opening up some of my my thoughts and um, 
you know, bringing in some new perspectives. So thank you for that. So Kat, do you have any last thoughts? I'm definitely going to be watching the next two films. So hopefully we can come back and talk about the evolution of Iron Man's identity because I'm hooked now. I'm going to have to go watch them as soon as I get home. Fantastic. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here today, Kat. Thanks for having me. If you would like to shoot me a message and perhaps talk more about Iron Man, you can find me at anidea underscore podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Artwork was designed by Brooke Pender, who you can follow at bpenderillustrations on Instagram. Music by Demeter Salvia. You can check out their debut EP, Etc. Volume 1 on Bandcamp. Thank you for listening and join me next time for I'm 95, I'm Not Dead, a deep dive into Captain America, the Winter Soldier.